we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. We ask you to guide and show us what you would want us to see from this. And bless us as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles chapter 6. We're continuing Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. Uh, he has repeated the history of, of the temple, that David wanted to build it. He, he's on, if you recall, a brass scaffolding seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet up so that everybody can see him. And now he's in, in verse 22. We're going to continue. If a man sin against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear and the oath come before your altar in this house, then hear you from heaven and do and judge your servants by requiting the wicked and recompensing his ways upon his own head and by justifying the righteous, by giving him according to his righteousness. And if your people Israel are put to worse before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and have returned and confessed your name, and pray and make supplications before you in this house, then hear you from the heavens and forgive the sins of your people Israel and bring them again into the land which they, you give them, gave to them and to their fathers. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, yet if they pray toward this place and confess their, your name and turn from their sin when you do afflict them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your, peop your servants and your people Israel when you have taught them the good way wherein they should walk and send rain upon your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. So I'm going to stop here. Uh, one of the things that was very interesting, because uh, I read this in another translation, and the word if is translated when in many of the newer translations, and that is a valid translation for the particular word here. It can be when, since, uh, it's, it's not if in the way we think of it. You know, we think if and it may be possible, but it, it tends in the Hebrew to have a more this is going to happen tense to it. And so, and I think Solomon being understanding knows that this isn't if the people do it, it's going to be when the people do, do these things. Uh, he knows how rebellious they are. Uh, he knows the history of the people through, through his father's day, through, his, through Saul's days, through the judges, through, through Moses. He knows how rebellious the people are. And I do believe that when is probably a more <laughs> accurate. Is it? Yeah, a lot of the newer ones have a when. When a man sins against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear and the oath come before your altar in this house, then hear you from heaven and do and judge your servants by requiting the wicked, by recompensing his way upon his own head, and by justifying the righteous, giving him according to his righteousness. <laughs> so here we have the man, if a man or when a man sins, and an oath is laid on him to make him swear. This is kind of like what happens in, in our courts of law. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. An oath has been placed on him, and they did the same type of thing. Swear before God that you are telling the truth. And so Solomon is saying when this happens and somebody makes this oath to tell the truth or to fulfill something, uh, and it come before you and your altar, then God, you hear the oath. And this is something that is very important because for us, Paul in the New Testament says, let your yea be yea and your nay be yea. He goes, don't swear by anything. And Jesus said the same, don't swear by the, the temple or the altar. Just, you know, make your statement. We, as followers of God, are supposed to be somebody that they can be trusted. They don't need an ironclad contract with us. If we say we're going to do something, we should do it. We should accomplish it. And here is what he's saying, you know, if this has happened, then God, you hear, you judge your judge you, and you requit or pay back or return the wicked by giving them or recompensing their way upon their own head. So God is Solomon is saying when they when they harm somebody, when they've sinned against somebody, God, and that oath is made, God, you bring judgment. And I understand this because this is what is really true Solomon even though he's king and he's going to be the judge saying God will bring judgment as well 
And this is just the thing. Nobody ever truly gets away with anything. God sees and hears everything, and he has a plan, and, and judgment will come eventually. Most of the time, it does happen in this lifetime at some point. And even when we think somebody's gotten away with something, if we knew their heart and their, and their conscience, we would realize they didn't get away with it. Now, if somebody gets away with, you know, doesn't get punished for it, but they have always worried about, you know, what if somebody finds out about this activity and they live a miserable life because their conscience is always getting to them. Uh, and a, then one day they just finally let it go and people go, well, you got away with it. And they go, no, I didn't get away with it. I've had a problem all my life with this whole thing. People don't get away with it, even though we think they get away with it. They're still, and ultimate judgment will always be obtained at the white throne judgment at the very latest. Uh, and that's what Solomon is praying for. Verse 24 says, If your people Israel be put to worse before their enemies, because they have sinned against you. So here he's going, you know, this is, this is one I know for sure that has to be a win, because he knows they're going to. He knows the book of Judges. He knows that Israel, when they have sinned, have been put to the worse. It says, so when they are put to worse before their enemy because they have sinned and shall return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house. In other words, they come and repent. Then God hear you from heaven and forgive their sin of your people and bring them again into the land which you gave them and to their fathers. So here's Solomon. He's still really on the history lesson that he gave before, because he knows the history of the people. He knows that they have been rebellious. He knows they were rebellious under Moses. He knows they were rebellious under the judges. He knows that there was rebellion under Saul, and that the people really had a rebellious heart even under David. And he says, I know you're going to do this, and when you do it, if you come back to the temple and you pray and you ask for forgiveness, he says, God, please forgive. Uh, and this is a wonderful prayer that he's giving them. And then verse 26 goes, when the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. All right. So when natural disaster falls upon them. So he's talked about individuals. He's talked about the nation losing in battle. Now he's going, when nature comes against us, all right? And this is something that I am seeing more and more in our world. As people are getting further and further from God, we're seeing more and more natural disasters coming along. And I know that it is God saying, I want your attention. I'm, I'm going to shake things up for you. Wake up. You know, you know, wake up and, and repent. And he says, when these things happen, if they pray toward this place and confess my name to, and turn from their sins when you do afflict them, so if, you, if they turn, if they repent, then hear you from heaven and forgive the sins of your servants and of your people when you have taught them the good way wherein they should walk and send rain upon your end, which you have given unto your people for an inheritance. So again, he says, when they repent, and this one has a two-part answer. You will teach your people how they are to walk and you will send the rain. And this is the thing about it. We, it's been said over and over, we are only one generation away from Christianity being over. If the older generation doesn't teach the younger generation to follow God, then Christianity's over because you know, uh, when we die out, there's nobody to come in. And our job is to teach. Teach people how to become saved, how to walk with God, and that way they can repent and be rewarded for their actions. Solomon is not saying every time, these, every time something bad happens, it is because of judgment. He's just saying when that does happen, repent. And what have I said over and over again? When bad things seem to be happening to you, your first thing to look and say is, have I sinned? Do I deserve what's coming my way? Without being too introspective, because all of us have sinned and have problem areas, but, you know, we all know what I, you know, hopefully you know what I'm talking about. You know, I've gone out and I've purposely sinned, I, and I know that this sin is standing between me and God, and, and bad things are happening to me. 
then I know that I'm getting what I deserve and then I repent and watch what God's going to do. There are those instances where I'm just in a place where Job was. God is saying, do you still trust me even though I'm taking away what you've had your hope in? And it was hard for Job because Job loved God, followed God, but you know, I wonder sometimes, did he trust in his riches as God took them away? His wife apparently did. <laughs> uh, so we don't know for sure all of that, but God was teaching Job a lot of things through all of this. He was teaching Job's four friends a lot of things through what he went through. And so this is the first thing I do. When bad things seem to happen to me, I'm going to look and say, God, do I deserve what I'm getting? If I am, then I repent and say, God, I'm going to just bear up underneath these, these trials. I repent, and then I'll watch God redeem the situation. If I don't, thank you, God. Help me learn what I'm supposed to learn. <laughs> uh, you know, help me to learn or watch what others are going to learn. Sometimes we go through hardships so that others can see us endure righteously the hardship and go, I need what they have. And that is a true statement, too, because people need to see the blessings and the peacefulness that we can go through things because we trust God. And that will help encourage a lot of people. If you can be still faithful, you can do this with God, then maybe I can, maybe I want what you have. And that sometimes it's just to make people jealous of us uh, and want what we have. So, and so he says, you know, if the weather, and this is going back to the weather, the righteous suffer when the weather it goes bad too because the evil are so bad that the God's got to bring judgment and oftentimes good people, quote unquote, suffer because of it. And this is a sad thing because the further we get away from God, the further we don't preach the gospel, the further we don't bring people in, the more we will suffer as well. And all of Israel suffered during these, these events and there were righteous people even though the majority of the people were not. And the sad thing in America, I believe that the majority of the people are not righteous, are not followers of Christ. We have lots of people claiming to be Christians, but they don't follow Christ. They don't believe in the Bible. They don't pray. They don't do anything. And when we look at the what's called evangelical Christians, I'm not even sure half of them are saved sometimes. They just know the right things to say. And so here he's saying, when all these things happen and people ask for forgiveness and when you have taught them the good way and the way they should walk and then you send the rain, God will teach his people. And the good news for us is God always has a remnant in this world. Uh, uh, forgot the prophet that... Uh, that complained he was the only one, and God says, no, I've got 5,000 who haven't bent their knees. <laughs> uh, but he does always has a remnant. Through the dark ages, when Catholicism was getting further and further away from true Christianity, God still had a remnant of believers seeking the word, following the word. And God always has a remnant. Even in the tribulation period, he'll have a remnant to preach. 144,000 Jewish believers will preach the gospel during the seven years of tribulation. So he always will have a remnant. It will never be completely over because there will always be somebody who's teaching their children and their children are following. So we're going to have that going on always. And then it says in verse uh, 28, if there be dearth in the land and there be pestilence, if there be blasting or mildew, locusts or caterpillars, if their enemies besiege them in the cities of their land, whatsoever sore and whatsoever sickness there be, then what prayer or supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all your people Israel, when everyone shall know that his own sore and his own grief and shall spread forth his hands in this house, then hear you from heaven, your, hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render unto every man according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you only know the hearts of the children of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways so long as they live in the land which you give unto our fathers. 
Well, we're over concerning the stranger, which is not in your, of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your great name's sake and your mighty hand, and you stretched out and your stretched out arm. If they come and pray in your house, then hear you from heavens, even from your dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for, that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as does your people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. All right, so here he goes. He's talked about individuals. He's talked about the, the nation losing in battle. He's talked about uh, weather. And then he goes, if there be dearth in the land, dearth is famine. If there be pestilence, a plague. And if there be a blasting and blights, or mildew, or locusts, or caterpillars. <laughs> you know, he's, he's talking about more natural disasters, of, and not so much natural, but health disasters. And we see this going on. It's going on in our world right now. We've got natural disasters going on. We've got wars all around the, the world going on constantly right now. And we're starting to see diseases and famines and all that stuff happening. And he goes, if all of that's happening, if their enemies besiege them in their cities and their land, whatsoever sore and whatsoever sickness there be. All right. Kind of sounds like our day. All the sicknesses, all the natural disasters. Uh, it's amazing to me that each nat national um, sickness that comes along is the next thing that's going to destroy our civilization. Uh, you know, we can go back through each, each generation and find some sickness that was going to destroy it. Right now it's COVID. COVID's going to destroy, destroy the world. The last one before COVID that I could really think of was AIDS was going to destroy the world. Uh, before that, I don't remember, you know, what it was, and you know, but we keep going back, and there was some disease that's going to destroy the world. Right. You know, that was a that was a long time ago. Uh, but there's going to be these things that are going to destroy the world if we don't get hold of them, and it's not new. Solomon already understood that these things were going to happen, and this is the great thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's happened has happened before. Maybe not exactly the same way it's happening right this moment, but it has all happened and will happen. And then he says, Whatever prayer or supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all your people, when every man shall know his own sore, his own wounds, and his own grief or pain, and shall spread forth his hands in this house. He goes, If anybody will just humble themselves. If anybody will humble themselves and pray, then hear you from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render unto every man according to all his ways whose hearts you know, for only you know the hearts of the children of men. This is wonderful that God is capable of knowing the heart. It's also scary. It's also scary that he knows the heart. Because I might be saying all the right words, but if my heart is not repentant, God also knows that my heart hasn't repented. And then I don't see the blessings from it because I've said the right words and God is not a great big vending machine or an ATM or whatever you want to look at. And, you know, he's, not a, he's not a gift giver to the, to the unrepentant. When we repent and truly want what he has, God will step in and deliver. If my heart isn't right before him and I'm just saying the right words and, and all of that, then God just says, uh, well, when your heart gets right, <laughs> I will move. And this is why it's kind of funny when we watch, you know, prayers and everything going up. I, and I believe that we should be praying, but many times people are just coming together to pray just so they can be seen praying. Yeah, and that is not what we want to see happen. We want to see God truly work. I truly want to see a revival in our land, in our county, in our, in our world. But it's going to take many people that want to see that revival to come, come to fruition. And it says, God will hear, he will forgive, and he will render according to all his ways. 
And then he goes on to say, for only you know the hearts of the children. God, you're the only one that knows the heart. And the scary thing is when you take Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And this is why without a heart being replaced because of repentance and forgiveness of God, our heart is evil. And even when God replaces it, we have trouble with a fallen nature and a, and a fallen desires. So we, we desire him more, but we also still have trouble because our soul is still fallen. And this is a problem that we will have. And then it says in verse 31, that they may fear you or reverence or respect you and walk in your ways so long as they live in the land that you have given to their father. So he goes, they need to fear God. Right now, Israel is in their land, but they're not fearing God as a nation. I heard some terrible news about all the sins that Israel is allowing to happen now in their land. And it's like, okay, God, you're going to have to bring judgment on your own people again. Uh, and, but it's still what's happening even in the church. The church is accepting so many things that are wrong, so many things that are sin, oftentimes done in the name of tolerance, the name of getting people into the church. But once you start making that distinction and acceptance of that activity, you can then turn around and speak against what you're giving tolerance to. And this is something that is a problem in today's, especially American church and European church. We are giving too much tolerance to sin. There are a lot of sins, uh, churches that won't call sin a sin, won't talk about the blood of Jesus Christ, and then wonder why nobody's lives change. And this is something that is very important, that we must fear God and repent. Otherwise, there's nothing there. Then he moves into a very interesting area, especially from a Jewish point of view. Moreover, concerning the stranger or the alien, somebody who's not a Jewish citizen, which is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for that great name's sake and your mighty hand and your, and, and your stretched out arm if they come and pray in this house. So he's talking about, he understood one thing that was lost later on. Non-Jews could come to the temple to pray. By Jesus' day, they were not allowed in the temple. They could go to the outer courts of it, but they could not go in to where true worship occurred. As a matter of fact, the women couldn't even go into where true worship occurred. And the women could go closer than a Gentile. All right? But, but that was about it. So women had higher rates than the Gentiles, but they had no right to go worship God by Jesus' day. Solomon goes, if they come to this temple and they come to worship God and they raise their hands and they're praying, he goes, God, you want that. Solomon understood that God desired the nations to respond. You know, uh, and this is sad because a lot of churches aren't realizing that God wants the nations or the lost to, to respond. There are a lot of churches that look at the lost world and say, no, we don't want anything to do with them because they might, they might spoil our, our fellowship. They might spoil our church. And that is a sad place to even think about becoming. Uh, we need to be very careful that we never get to the place where we're going to say, you know, they have to be a Christian or else. I want to make sure that we have non-Christians coming to church. And if they spoil our carefully balanced uh, fellowship, great. We probably needed to be shook up anyway. Because if we can't accept the, the loss for where they're at, then we have a problem. And we need to make sure that they are accepted. Not that their sin is accepted. Not that their lifestyle is accepted. But they are accepted. And then they will learn the truth and be able to change and, be, and, and learn how to follow God in a better way. But we need to make sure that that is happening and then it says, and when they come into the house, verse 35, then hear you from, he, from the heavens their prayer and their supplica supplications and maintain their cause as well. So he says, if they're going to come and praise you, then God, you take care of them. You hear their prayers. And then it goes, if they, 
the, the context here is the, the strangers, the aliens, if they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not, and you be angry with them and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives off into the land far and near. So here, I skipped a section, didn't I? I did. Let me come back to 34. I'm sorry, I, I got lost. If your people go out to war against your enemies by the way that you shall send them, and they pray unto you toward the city which, they have cho- which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear you from the heavens their prayer and their supplications, maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no, no man which sins not, and you be angry with them and deliver them over because of their enemies, before their enemies, and they get carried away captives in, unto a land far off or near. Yet if they bethink themselves in that land where, you, where they are carried captive and turn and pray unto you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and we have got, done amiss and have done wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where you have carried them captives and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers and toward the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for them, then hear you from the heavens, even from your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people which have sinned against you. So now he moves into what was going to happen to the people. If your people go out to war against your enemies, by the way that you have sent them, and they pray unto you toward the city, and you have chosen in the house that you have built, then hear them from the heavens in pra- their prayer and supplication and maintain their cause. In other words, if they go out for a righteous war that God has called them to, and they have prayed, and they're following God, he's saying, bless them. And we have seen, we have seen in the past in Second, uh, Second Kings, and we'll see as we go forward, so many times where God blessed his people as they went out to war and fought a battle that there was no way they could possibly win and God delivered their enemies. We saw it all the way back in, in Moses' time, Joshua's time, the various judges. We, see, we saw it through David and we're going to see it with Hezekiah and, and Jehoshaphat and Josiah. We're going to see each one of these kings go out to fight battles that there was no way they could win and God delivered them. We look at this and he says, if they, if, if they go out to war and they're following your way, hear them and maintain their cause. Win the battle for them. Hezekiah, stuck in Jerusalem, being starved to death, goes out when Assyria has them surrounded and God delivers them and kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night with an angel. Uh, Jehoshaphat goes out to battle against, against the enemy. He puts the singers up front in front of the army. How would you like to be the singers in front going out to battle? They get to the top of the hill where the enemy is supposed to be. They're all dead in the valley. It says it took them three days to collect all of the treasures when that army was destroyed. I, and it doesn't say how many people were killed, but it takes three days for your army to collect all the all the goods that were left over, that's a lot of people that died. And God just killed, you know, set it up. It says that they killed each other. They saw something and killed each other. Uh, but, you know, over and over, God delivered his people in an answer to Solomon's prayer. They go out under your cause, maintain them. Verse 36 says, if or when they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not, and this is his little caveat, they're going to sin for you. This is why I'm pretty sure there's a when in here, not an if. Uh, so it's when they sin against you and there is no man that sins not. And you be angry with them and deliver them before their enemies and they get carried away captive unto a land far off or near. Solomon already recognizes that when God brings judgment, they're going to go into captivity. You know, did he have, was he being a prophet at this point in time? I think so. Because the northern kingdom is going to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. About 500 years later from Solomon. <laughs> so Solomon is saying, when you get captured, when you get ca- taken away captive, then this is what they do. And then he goes, yet. 
If they think about, bethink themselves in that land where they are carried captive and turn and pray unto you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and we have dealt wickedly. When they finally repent. Now this is not him saying they feel sorry for themselves. They felt sorry for themselves the whole time they were in captivity. Oftentimes we kind of feel sorry for our judgment, our activities happening to us, but that is not, feeling sorry is not repentance. (laughs) Repentance is when I turn from my sin toward God and say, God, I have violated your laws and I am turning back to you and I do not want to continue in the violation of your laws. A good example is, and I've, Oftentimes would ask my kids when they were when they got caught doing something, they go, I'm sorry, I'm going, Are you sorry you got caught or are you sorry for what you did? Most of the time people are sorry that they get caught. Uh, well, I'm really sorry I got caught. You know, uh, okay, so you wouldn't have been sorry if you didn't get caught. That's not repentance. <laughs> and so here he's saying, when they have come to you, when they have repented. Then, he goes in verse 38, if they return to you with all their heart and their soul in the land of their captivity, wherever you have carried them captivities and pray toward their land that you gave to their fathers and toward the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built in your name. So in other words, they focus their prayers to God and they're repenting. And as he said, with all their heart. And when you read the word heart in the Old Testament, the word is lab, L-E-B, in in transliteration. And it literally means the innermost seat of your emotions. It's not talking about our cardiac muscle. It it is talking about the center of our, our emotions, the very soul, you know, where my emotions well up. And so it's a very strong word. So when he says, when they turn to you with all their heart, everything that they are, and they are then ready to turn to you. This is where true repentance occurs. When I say, God, I am sorry that I have sinned. I repent. I'm turning back to you. And I mean it. Not just speaking words. But from down inside my emotional being, I'm going, God, I need to repent for what I have done. If it's anything less, it doesn't impress God. My, my intellect says, I'm being punished for what I did wrong. I need to repent. And God's saying, uh, no, your heart's not in it. Now, we, we use that term, your heart's not in it. And we kind of know when somebody's heart's not in it. They've just said the right words. They've just, they're doing the right actions. Uh, they're performing, or is their heart truly in the change? And we know that we see that at times. Now, we can be fooled because actions do speak very loud and everything, so sometimes we can be fooled by their actions, but God is never fooled by the actions. And this is what he's saying. When they do this, verse 39, then hear you from the heavens, even from your dwelling place, and again, here's, remember we talked earlier in this chapter that he says, God, can this house really, you know, you know this house can't be your dwelling place. The heavens of heavens can't, can't hold you, so this isn't doing. So each one of his prayers are, God, when they pray in this house, hear you from your, your dwelling place. Where you, you know, where you truly dwell, even though we're saying you dwell here, hear from where you truly dwell, but let your ears be upon this house. And this is one of the things that in church, there's nothing special about church other than the fact that we focus on God in church. And because we focus on him in church, God does listen to what's done in the church. The good news for us, God hears us wherever we call out to him. It's again, so there's nothing special. There was nothing special about the temple other than it focused people on God. And the same thing in church. When we come to church, we tend to focus more on God. We're more willing to hear the call for repentance. We're more willing to hear God speak than we are on our day-to-day operations. Not that we won't listen to God. 
and and that's what Solomon's saying. You know, hey, if they just out, even outside and they, you know, think about God in the temple, then God hear them. But he understood that God would also hear what's going on because people focused on him at the temple. They came to the temple to worship, supposedly. And just as they do in our day, in the, ten, the days of the temple, they would often come just to go through the rituals. Well, God said I had to be here and I had to bring my good lamb, so here's my good lamb to offer to God. I really wish I could have given him one of those lame things back there, but he wants the good one, so he's getting the good one. And I'm going to pray to him. And they'd say their prayer out of their prayer book. And God goes, okay, next. <laughs> Uh, is there anybody out there that wants to worship me? And there are a lot of people in today's world that come to church to put in their hour with God for the week and then live for the devil the rest of the week and even the rest of Sunday. They put in their one hour on Sunday and go, and go about their business and say, okay, God, I did my time. You, know, you sentenced me to one hour a week and I did my time. Now I'm free to do whatever I want. And if that's the reason for coming to church, you probably shouldn't come to church. It doesn't mean anything to God for that to happen. And so we need to be able to understand God wants us to serve him. He wants us to worship him. Not from obligation, but because we want to. And there's a big difference on that. And I've seen so many people over the years that they come to church so every time the doors are open they read their Bible every day and you ask them what they're learning from don't know just got it done didn't mean anything I don't learn anything from reading my Bible I just read my Bible because it's something I have to do it gets me my brownie points with God and they probably are not going to go that honest but I got my brownie points with God reading my Bible and, and saying my prayers and I came to church and so I'm okay with God because I did all these things and they're most religions are based upon that whole process. You know, get your brownie points with God in because you want him to be happy with you because you don't want to appear before him without those brownie points. And, you know, it's so sad because especially if you read the Bible, you know that nothing that I do is good enough to please God anyway. Only the righteousness of Jesus is going to please the Father. And we have to come to him wanting to serve him. Not because I'm getting something for it, I don't serve God and come to church and read my Bible so that I get something from God. Because I'm the one that gets it from Him. I come and I worship Him and He blesses me in great ways because I'm worshiping Him. I come to the Bible and I read it and I get fed and walk away. God, thank you for, the, for, the, for feeding me and honoring my time before you. Coming before Him in prayer and just worshiping him. And I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but just to come to God in prayer and break down before God and just know that you're in his presence, that we are presenting our supplications before the God of the universe and that he actually wants to hear us. This is really amazing when you really think about serving God with the right heart, the right attitude, and saying, God, I just want to serve you and truthfully I serve him because he blesses me in return I get blessed by reading the word I get blessed by teaching I get blessed by by worshiping I I love to go you know when I'm by myself you know in the, at the prison and just sing a song sing a worship song sing a sing a hymn sing a chorus read the bible you know during my breaks and stuff just and just lift up my voice to God and, and let him just come into the situation. I, the prison's a definite place where God is needed. Lots of guys out there that need God. Lots of inmates and workers <laughs> that need God. And it's a very important thing to turn to God, to praise him. <clears throat> and he says in verse 3, then they will hear from the heavens, your dwelling place, their prayers, their supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive your people which have sinned against you. So he says, when they come, when they turn around, turn their hearts to you, even if they've been carried away captive. So many times 
Christians can be carried away captive when they start following the wrong way. And if we do not pay attention to God's warning signs, we may not literally be taken to another country, but have you ever found yourself not interested in coming to church, not interested in reading the Bible, not interested in being with God's people, you're moving into a captivity situation. And we need to be able to understand, I want to be with God's people. I want to be with God. And if not, I am being carried away captive and I need to repent and be drawn back into him, into the right place that I need to be in. And that's a very important thing for us. Verse 40 says, now, my God, let I beseech you, your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to the prayers that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord, into your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away your face, the face of your anointed Remember the mercies of David, your servant. So here he's ending his prayer. Now, my God, let I beseech you, your eyes be open and your ears be attent unto the prayers that are made in this place. God, listen. See what's going on. When people come here to worship you, God, pay attention. And this is one thing I will say about church. God we'll pay attention because we come with the right attitude when we come to church. Do you have to come to church to worship God? Nope, you didn't even in those days. You didn't have to go to the temple to worship God. But we do focus more on God when we come to his house. We can worship up on the mountain. We can worship out on the lake. And one thing I love to ask people, go, well, you don't have to go to church to worship. You can do it this or the other place. And I'm going, that's fine, you can. Are you? When you're out on the lake, are you even thinking about God at all? And the answer, if they're honest, is usually no. If you're out there on the mountain camping, are you thinking about God? Uh, no, not really. You're right. You can worship God on the mountain. You can worship God at the lake. You can worship God at the ocean. You can worship God at the ski lodge if you want to. But most people aren't. And so it's just becoming an excuse with them. Verse 30, 41, Now therefore arise, O Lord God, into your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. So he says, arise, come into, he's calling the temple his resting place. He knows it's not God's dwelling place. He goes, this is just where you're going to meet your people in, in this point. And let your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. Now, I like these statements because this is not something you see oftentimes in the Old Testament. First off, let, your, um, let the priest be clothed with salvation, deliverance. What are we told in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, that all believers are priests before God? So here again is another prophecy. Let your priest be clothed in deliverance. What is true deliverance? the righteousness of Christ. Let them be snatched away and clothed and let your saints rejoice in goodness. Now this term saints is not used often in the, in the Old Testament. These are the ones that are set aside that are holy. Now there are lots of saints in the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong. But it's not used often in the Old Testament. Now it's used all the time in the New Testament. Those of us that are in Christ Jesus are said to be saints. We are holy. We are righteous. But here Solomon's recognizing anybody that is following God, clothed in, in the salvation, clothed in seeking God, are saints. He's recognizing that, this, that they have a special place with God. Those that have repented that are following after him. And so he's saying, God... Pay attention to this area, to your people, deliver, you know, protect your, your priest and your saints, your people. O Lord God, turn not away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of David, your servant. So his final prayer is quite interesting. O Lord God, turn not away or don't remove the face of your anointed. 
The word here is for anointed is Messiah. Don't turn away the face of the Messiah. Okay? And this is something important to, to remember. And it says, remember the mercies of David, your servant. God, you promised David a lot of promises. You promised him his, his seed would always sit on the, on the throne, which means there has to be a throne to sit on. So in other words, he's reminding God, you promised that there's going to be a king, a king in David's line forever, and therefore there must be a nation for him to sit on. <laughs> now, he kind of left out the entire uh, church age movement <laughs> uh, where there is no seat for him to sit on, but Jesus is still king of, of the whole world, not just of Israel at that time, but he will return at the end of the tribulation period to establish the Jewish kingdom for a thousand years. And so, and then he'll go back to being the king of the universe again, and he will never leave being the king of the universe, but, you know, he will have this point in time when he will be the king of Israel and still be king of the universe, but they're going to recognize him finally as their king. And this is what he's saying, Lord, don't turn away your, the face of the anointed. Don't turn away the Messiah's gaze on us. Always, always they have been looking for the Messiah. The first prophecy of the Messiah is in Genesis 3, that the Messiah would destroy the, the, the sin. That's the first one. And over and over and over again, we see the Messiah coming in and being shown on this. For the Jewish girls all the way through, even till this day, is, Lord, maybe I will be the one that gives birth to the Messiah, the Deliverer. Especially if they're of the tribe of Judah, because most of them forget that he has to be of the tribe of Judah, but if they're from the tribe of Judah, they're really, maybe I'm going to have the Messiah. When Mary was told, you are going to give birth to the Messiah, that was the greatest blessing that she could ever picture. She didn't understand what it meant. She didn't understand that she was going to have to watch him die and be rejected and, and all of that, but she had been given the greatest blessing that any girl in Israel could have been given. They always wanted to be the mother of the Messiah, the one that was going to be the king, that was going to rule, that was going to deliver. And all of that was always going on the Messiah is always being re referenced throughout the scriptures. Examples and or straight forth uh, statements of the Messiah. And here he says, ends his prayer talking about the Messiah coming. And this is a very powerful prayer. It's a very long prayer, <laughs> but it's a very powerful prayer where he talks about the history of Israel and he knows what, where they've come, what, where they've been. He talks about what they're going to do and ask God to bless them when they finally do repent. And he ends with the Messiah and say, God, don't forget your promises. Don't forget the promise to David. Don't forget the Messiah is going to come. You know, and I don't think he really believed that God was going to forget, but he, you know, we see it all through the scriptures that everybody reminds God about what he said. And there is a school of thought that says prayer, the promises of the Bible back to God to kind of help him not forget. I think it's more for us to remember the promises than for God to remember them because God's not going to forget. He's made his promises. He will fulfill them. But when we pray his promises, we're putting them back into our mind, our thought processes. And here Solomon is saying, God, you, you know, I started with the promise to David. I'm going to end with the promise to David. Don't forget the promises of David. And I think more on this, he was speaking to the people in the temple than he was to God at that point. God is not going to forget the Messiah is coming. He is not going to forget. We're asking him not to forget. And God, remember all the promises of David, which I talked about at the beginning of the prayer, yeah. even though it took us four weeks to get to it. <laughs> You know, for him, it just took minutes to, to go through this whole prayer. And he says, God, remember. Remember what we already talked about. And it's so important for us. Remember. 
one of the greatest scriptures that we have in the Bible is the word, words in the Bible is to remember. God tells us all through the scriptures, remember, remember, remember. And he repeats himself all over the place because he knows one thing about humans. We forget. And as has been famously said, we forget what we should, uh, we remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. And so God keeps saying, remember, remember the things I want you to remember, which is his righteousness, his holiness, his, for, his, his forgiveness, his ways. And we need to learn to remember. And God repeats himself over and over and over in the scriptures because he wants us to be able to remember. And we forget so easily, so often we forget what we should be knowing and what we're supposed to, supposed to. And then we keep remembering all the stuff that we're supposed to forget. We remember our sins that God has forgiven. We remember other sins against us that we're supposedly forgiven. You know, we remember so many things that we shouldn't, shouldn't remember and we forget all the blessings of God and the benefits of God. And God, I can almost see him shaking his head going, would you all just do what I tell you to do? Forget all that stuff that you, is so negative and remember what I'm telling you to, you know, to remember. And if we could just learn to be obedient to just that one thing, life would be a whole lot better for us. Lord, we ask you to bless this day. We ask you to give us the opportunity to really learn to remember what you want us to remember and to forget what you want us to forget. Lord, help us to turn to you when, when, when things seem to be going wrong and repent and turn back to you and all these things. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Their wages of the sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening, and have a wonderful day.